Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Dr. Diego Roman is one of the most incredibly kind and smart people I have ever met in my life. He is also a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, like one of our previous guests, Dr. Maria Elena Huambachano from episode 25. Shout out to my friend, Amy Doherty, who connected us all. Amy and I graduated from the Environmental Studies program at Eckerd College. And when I think about it, it's so funny how this podcast has become a manifestation of many things in my life. But more than anything, the connections I've been able to make has really baffled me. They seem so random, but at the same time, when I think about it, it's not really that random. And how the connections manifest reminds me of how deeply connected we are to each other. Anyways, I was going down a rabbit hole there, so we'll get back to introducing our guest this week. Diego's research interests are located at the intersection of linguistics, science education, and environmental studies. How cool is that? We've had multiple and long conversations about how he investigates the implicit and explicit ideologies reflected in the design and implementation of bilingual programs, in this case, Spanish and English. To me, what's interesting about Diego's research is he's looking at how implicit biases play out in classrooms where environmental education is being taught to bilingual students. He researches the language that is used to teach various environmental issues from climate change to water quality. We talk about how teachers need to have multicultural competencies in order to communicate to bilingual students, the importance of understanding environmental topics, and how these issues affect the students and their families' well-being. This is such a fascinating topic, and it's so important because how we communicate environmental topics to people from various backgrounds is going to determine whether they become vocal advocates for environmental sustainability or not. As much as possible, we have to teach environmental topics in a way that students can relate to it and feel empowered to do something about environmental injustices. Diego does a way better job of explaining his research interest, and I encourage you to look into the many resources he refers to during this conversation. They will also be available in the show notes. This was such an interesting topic. I could talk to Diego about his research for hours as I have in the past, and I hope we can bring him back to continue the conversation. I feel this way about all of our guests, and there's just never enough time, but at least we've started the conversation. Listen on. So we'll start off by you just telling us a little bit about your experience of what drew you to working on environmental issues and what specific area have you ended up focusing on? Mm-hmm. So I got into the field of environmental education and bilingual education as a second career. For my undergrad, I studied agricultural issues, agricultural sciences. In Honduras, I am originally from Ecuador and I left Ecuador when I was 19. And then I lived in Honduras for five years, and my undergrad was in agricultural sciences with a focus on biological control of pests. Mm. So when I finished my undergrad, I applied for an internship at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign to work at the Illinois Natural History Survey. That was in 1998. So I came here just to experience the American college system. I just wanted to see it, experience it, and then go back to Ecuador. Yeah. What was that like, the American college (laughs) experience? (laughs) To me, it was just like what I had seen in the movies, you know? I didn't even know what to expect. I had always been reading about American universities, seeing movies about them. Fraternities and sororities. Exactly. (laughs) Like, I wanted to see what is a fraternity. I didn't even know what that was. What is tenure, like at the academic level? Like I wasn't, I didn't know anything about it, but I have heard about it. I have read about it. So when I finished undergrad, I thought this is my chance to see it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to, I wasn't planning on doing a master's or a PhD. I just wanted to go see it, live through it, go back, done, right. check. 
I did yeah. it. I saw it. Let's go back to work. Let's go start living my quote-unquote normal life in Ecuador. Yeah. So I came and I was doing this internship. We were doing an inventory of some insect pests in plant in the prairies in Illinois. So I came in August and my goal was to go back in December to Ecuador. But through that first period, I got offered an extension to work at a different lab, working with naturally occurring viruses that affect insects who eat corn in the fields. So I stayed there for another uh, period of time, and then I got an extension for another period of time. So I ended up completing a year. And through that year, I took the GRE, the TOEFL, then I applied for the PhD um, master's program which I didn't do until far later. But through that program, uh, through that internship, I started visiting schools, bringing insects, like uh, the lab had an, a collection of exotic insects. Mm. So we had hissing cockroaches, and we <laughs> also <laughs> have arthropods, we had tarantulas, and we used to bring them to the science fair, the different schools. Yeah. And I used to explain to kids, and the idea was to get kids excited about pursuing careers in science and the value of entomology. And then I got just so excited in working with kids, answering their questions and telling them about my job when I go in the fields and collect insects and why that is important for all of us. And then I decided to switch from entomology to education, mm. but still connected to how we talk about environment, how we frame environmental issues, how what's taking place outside the classroom in terms of nature impacts how we teach about science, for example, inside the schools. And then I pursued that path in my teaching as a middle school teacher, and then in my master's and the PhD that Mm -hmm. I did in education linguistics. Okay. So I didn't know that you lived in Honduras and Ecuador. Could you tell us a little bit about if you had experiences interacting with nature in those two countries? And if so, what were those experiences like? So I left Ecuador. I go back every year, twice a year sometimes, Mm -hmm. because I still work in a project there Mm -hmm. in the Galapagos, working with science teachers to connect education with the long-term sustainability of the archipelago of the Galapagos Islands. Okay. But growing up, I thought that it was, because this is a much smaller country, Ecuador is a very small country, the second smallest in South America. It's still very diverse in terms of biodiversity. It's one of the most biodiverse Mm -hmm. countries in the world, especially in the Amazon region of the country, in the eastern region of the country. So I had a few chances to go there and in some ways observe how, for me, the most impactful thing was how everything was changing every time that I went back. Because of the eastern region, even though it's the most biodiverse, it's also where the old reserves are. Every time that I went there and to my hometown, which is in the Andes, I saw more and more development, right? More houses, more people, and less trees, less protected mm. areas. Yeah. So even though it's a beautiful area, on the other hand, you see this increasing impact of human actions on the environment. And to me, because I left it, like a friend of mine used to say, for immigrants, you enter into some kind of a time tunnel. In your mind, you left things the way they were when you left. Right. And then that's how you imagine them and remember them. So when you go back and you see them differently, it's like a shock because you arrived at a different 200 years later, like in the movies. (laughs) I don't know anyone. (laughs) Exactly. Like you you feel like you're in a different era and like you travel through time. Yeah. And then you see it and and you try to picture it through your eyes on how things were left when you left. And I see that in nature, like I see that in less trees or more development in the different protected and urban areas. So that was in in Honduras, because I was working in agricultural areas. I remember with a friend of mine how the use of, let's say, pesticides, chemicals, and how those were used in the fields to produce, let's say, bananas or corn. So in many ways, how the industrialized producing of food is also impacting the natural areas. So my time in Honduras was more about food production mm-hmm. and agricultural work, applying pesticides to weeds or to different insects. Kind of the, on the one hand, the need to do that to produce food for all of us. Yeah. And on the other hand, the impact that that has on the environment, right? 
and how low-income individuals are the ones who tend to do, quote-unquote, the more day-to-day work in terms of doing that type of activities, right? Like going to the fields and applying pesticides and the effect that that has on their own health. Right. So I guess that those were the biggest things that I remember from my time in Ecuador and Honduras. So I remember the beauty of those countries and the amazing natural areas. But I also remember poverty and how low-income individuals are the ones who experience that the most. Right. The disproportionality of health issues associated with, let's say, environmental factors that are suffered by more low-income individuals, especially in developing countries. But in here too, in the U.S., it happens as well. But I guess the the proportion over there is greater. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you were talking about how you would go in sort of like this time warp when you would go back and visit in Ecuador, I could totally relate to that because I would go to Kenya at least once a year to visit with my family. And there was certain periods most recently where I, I couldn't go to visit. And I think three or four years had gone by and the most recent visit um, was in December of last year in 2019, where I visited after four years. And it's changed so much. It doesn't look like the Nairobi I grew up in. And I think this is quite a common experience for people who have left their country and then go back to visit from time to time. And they don't feel like they belong there anymore because it's just changed so much physically and also culturally. And I remember growing up in Nairobi, it was very green and there wasn't so much congestion, not too much pollution. But over the years that I've been visiting, the pollution is just too much from the cars and the industry. And it's becoming really densely populated. And we've lost a lot of our greenery because of urban development. And it just breaks my heart. But at the same time, it's that, yeah, I guess this is the consequence of development. And this is the consequence of economic growth. And other developed nations had to go through this as well in terms of their economic evolution. I guess that's happening to us right now. And I'm just worried that we're losing so much of our biodiversity in Kenya and in other countries that are experiencing these rapid changes in their rural and urban landscape. But yes, Kenya is is a very beautiful country. And I just worry that just like you is there's a huge gap between Mm -hmm. the have and the have nots. Mm -hmm. At whose expense are we developing? Yeah. 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 And the way I see it, it's those who are marginalized, low income and the natural environment. But I don't want to poo-poo on this conversation and be all depressing. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that you were talking about in terms of how you evolved in your interest from entomology to education, it sounded like you saw a lot of hope and potential in educating the youth about Mm -hmm. the importance of the natural sciences and science in general. And so now your focus more is on the intersection of linguistics, science education, and environmental studies. Could you tell us a little bit about what's happening in that intersection of linguistics, science education, and environmental studies, and why it's important? Mm -hmm. So I look at how we talk about environmental issues, particularly with low-income multilingual children. So I try to understand how we frame the impact of, let's say, environmental degradation for children who are growing up in low-income communities, particularly if they are acquiring English as an additional language. Mm -hmm. I have heard, and right now that we're going through these sad and crazy times of the coronavirus and the COVID-19, the impacts that we are experiencing throughout the planet, how some people are saying we are all experiencing this. And then I was just remembering how when we kind of generalize it in many, without this nuance, who is suffering the most when these things happen, we ignore the different realities that we have based on race or income where we live. So I tried to see how, for example, issues around, let's say, water or air pollution are presented as 
in a very generic way or climate change when the ones who suffer the most are communities of color, also the impact of socioeconomic factors in who in reality suffers the worst part of these environmental impacts. So I look at how textbooks present these factors, uh, whether they address this disproportionality of who is really suffering the hardest part of the environmental issues, and how and whether teachers know about how to discuss these issues with their students, especially in diverse communities. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, a, a, I look at this intersection of language, science education, and environmental studies and see how in, for example, classroom settings, these issues or whether these issues are discussed and how they are discussed. Mm-hmm. So that is what I am examining right now. Right. And my position is in, in bilingual education. So I focused mostly in how these issues are discussed either in bilingual programs with Latinx students who are multilingual, Spanish, English, and many times other languages mm-hmm. in this context of science education. Right. What are the differences that you're noticing in terms of how science education or environmental education is taught to bilingual kids versus, I should say, non-bilingual kids? Mm-hmm. Part of the thing is that right now there is a significant growth in the number of dual language programs around the country. Right. So these dual language immersion programs, DLI programs or two-way immersion programs different states call them different ways or label them in different ways. So the bilingual programs now are being labeled as two-way dual language programs. Mm -hmm. And that has also brought a change in who is served by those programs. Right. Because now mainstream, monolingual, middle-upper class, Americans, white Americans, also want their kids to be enrolled in those programs. So now you have a population of students who, in some ways, some of them low-income Spanish speakers who are taking courses with children who are monolingual English speakers, perhaps or sometimes of higher income families, and they're placed together in the classroom. And the idea is that each group serves as a language model for the others. Mm-hmm. Spanish speakers will be helping the other students or uh, learning English and the other ones more learning Spanish and the other ones learning English to children who are monolingual Spanish speakers. Now, What has happened is that bilingual ed, from its roots in very much social justice activism, moved into this more mainstream sphere of learning another language is really good for you and will open up doors in jobs. And so now it's been framed in a very practical, kind of utilitarian way. Yeah. Versus before, the 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe 90s is when it started to change. It was more about language maintenance. It's my right to maintain my home language, my native language. My family speaks Spanish at home. I should maintain my language to be connected to my family, to my culture, to my roots. And now it's moving into being multilingual is good for everyone, which is true. But some scholars are saying, are we ignoring by doing this, the social activism through which bilingual education was born or developed? as sustaining our rights as a group. So I look at the specific case of science education in which all of these tensions take place, like in this changing or evolving field of how bilingual education takes place. How are we discussing topics that could be quote unquote controversial? For example, this differential impact of environmental issues Mm -hmm. in which you have families that if, let's say, flooding happens in their communities, they could just move because they have the income to do so. Right. Versus for low-income families, if flooding happens in their communities, they don't have anywhere to go. And are we presenting this as just a scientific fact, like this area is prone to flooding? Or are we considering, or are teachers considering, these different origins or social income and cultural backgrounds and linguistic backgrounds of the students that they work with when they are discussing these issues. So what I am finding is, for example, at the level of textbooks, textbooks present these topics in a very generic way, in a very type of factual way, Mm -hmm. without considering the social aspects of how various communities are impacted by these issues. 
Now I am developing a study to see how much teachers know about the local issues impacting their communities, Mm -hmm. like the local environmental issues, flooding or water quality, and then trying to understand if they also know or whether they know how those issues are affecting in different ways various communities, depending on who they are. So especially I want to work in rural and semi-rural areas of, of the state and seeing how the demographic changes that are happening in across the country, right? That schools are becoming more diverse racially, linguistically, mm-hmm. how we can work with teachers in addressing this or having these discussions as we teach science and what is the type of support that they might need, that teachers may need to, to engage in this type of conversations mm-hmm. with the students who don't look like them, don't sound like them and who may come from also from different socioeconomic backgrounds. There are people who are working in these, these different ways of knowing and that students bring when they come from different backgrounds, cultural and linguistic backgrounds, and experiences that they have had, like we were saying before, by living in Kenya or in Ecuador or in Honduras, your connection to the environment might be different and how teachers can use those knowledges that kids already bring with them mm-hmm. in the teaching of these topics. Right. Also for children who were born here, like Latinx children who are second, third, fourth generation, Mexican-Americans or Salvadorian-Americans or Ecuadorian-Americans, but whose families may work in, in agricultural areas. So how can we use what they already know when we discuss these topics? And the role that language plays into that, how we talk about it, right? how we frame about, how we right. frame these topics in ways that includes them and don't exclude them from the discussion or blames them sometimes for some of the things that are happening in nature. So that is what I examined. Some work that I did was looking at textbooks and how sometimes science is presented through language in a very objective way, through the use of passive voice, for example. Deforestation rates are increasing, Mm. but there is no agent there. Like, who is doing the deforestation? Yeah, yeah. So that science, through its language, is presented as this very objective or in this very objective manner yeah. in which the human element is taken out of right. the who is doing right. it, right? Versus in the social sciences, human actions are the agents that do things. Right. You know, the politicians so and so did this. Yeah, so you see the anthropogenic influences on the natural environment, in a sense. Exactly. So it's easier to identify who is doing the what versus academic uh, writing, for instance, in science is more about the idea and about the results. Right. Results seem to show versus you will never say, I did this experiment to show this. (laughs) Right, right. The results suggest blah, blah, blah. Exactly. So, but that language also, when you talk about environmental issues, in many ways obscures who the actor or the agent was in causing X or Y or Z. Right. And the problem with that is by not pointing out who is the cause of that destruction or that harmful activity, Mm -hmm. then you're basically disempowering the individuals who are being impacted by the negative activity. And it also then takes away focus on the more privileged individual or entity that is causing that harm. As a child then who's learning this information, it becomes sort of like this abstract idea in your head where you don't know how this is truly impacting you and what role you have to play in changing this. Exactly. Right? Yeah. What teachers can do to undo that, Right. right? Like this developing of awareness a critical awareness, or in some ways it's called a critical language analysis, in which you will engage with your students in deconstructing Mm -hmm. this framing, right? Saying other, for example, in some work that we did with a colleague of mine who, she's at Carolina State University, Casey Bush, and we found that when textbooks talk about climate change, it's also these unquantifiable words that are used For example, some scientists think that climate change is happening, but then it's up to the teacher or the student to interpret what some mean. 
So some students would think Isn't some, some majority. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and that requires a lot of unpacking, right? Yeah. So language packs a lot of ideologies. The language packs a lot of perspectives. And in science, that also happens. Yeah. Even though science is perceived as this objective field. But the way we talk about it impacts how we understand it or what we understand in relation to what is presented. And I think it's particularly important when it's about environmental issues that affect your daily life or the life of your communities. And especially when your community is impacted in a harder way. Mm -hmm. There's various elements to your research. One is from a geographical standpoint, you're starting to look at rural and semi-rural students or how they're being taught in those regions. You're also focusing on how teachers can play a significant role in making sure that the information is translated and communicated in a way that is inclusive and respectful of the culture of the students that they're communicating with. I also think based on what you said earlier on about how bilingualism started off as the social justice movement as a way to preserve the Latinx community's culture and the language, that's something that I believe teachers also need to recognize, the history Mm -hmm. behind bilingualism, right? Because Mm -hmm. that way you're respecting the origins of that movement and also you are preserving the intentions of that movement. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, in many ways, I am teaching a class right now called Translanguaging Power and Education. Mm And in in all the classes that I teach, I tell the students, it's never only about the language. You know, it's never only about the language. Language is just the tip of the iceberg when we talk about communities and about learning a second language, an additional language, right? That's why, for example, I took French in college one semester and I don't remember anything because I wasn't connected to the language in any emotional, social way. Yeah. Or even the culture, you know. Or the culture, yeah. I thought that the language was beautiful, that I wanted to read in French some (laughs) books, but I never, I was focusing on the language, right? Right. So that never developed into a passion. Mm -hmm. And I think that passion, that emotional, social-emotional connection happens through community connections, through your understanding of the importance of language for a particular group of people, through social activism or social justice issues. And how, for example, if you are in a class or teaching Spanish to a diverse group of students, some who are of Latinx descent and some others don't, having this discussion about why is Spanish a significant language or an important language in this country? And where does that come from? And, and how we are connected to it in different ways, like some in intellectual only ways, some in a very emotional because I want to talk to my grandma ways. Mm -hmm. So for teachers and researchers to see it in that way, so it doesn't become, I'm just a teacher of the language, it becomes a a language as a vehicle to communicate and connect to all of these factors. Mm -hmm. So I think it's absolutely necessary to engage in these conversations, especially when multilingualism is becoming more prominent in the U.S. It has always been very prominent in multilingual countries, like in Europe or in Africa. But now that it's becoming more in some ways popular here in different schools, having this lens, I think is super important. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize until you said that multilingualism in the educational system is quite popular kind of throughout the world, which is true because growing up in Kenya, we were taught in English and Swahili. And when I came to the US, people would ask me, why I spoke, quote unquote, good English. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. oh, microaggression number one. Like, <laughs> oh, why, why wouldn't I? Yeah. But you also have to, it's sort of like the privilege that comes with you having to ask such a question, but also yeah. a reflection of the community or the individual who's coming from that community who's asking me, you don't look white, you're from Africa, why do you speak English mm-hmm. well? Mm-hmm. It's that mono culturalism or the monolingualism, yeah. I think that is kind of exactly. expressing itself <laughs> yeah. to me. And sorry, I just came to that realization <laughs> now. Yeah. And there is a fantastic book just last week for my class, now that it's an online class in the current situation. We just read, there is a framework called Racial Linguistics. Mm. There is a book by Samia Lim. I can send you yeah, the link. 
Samia Lim, John Rickford, and Ernitha Ball. And then there are two researchers, Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa, who are studying this intersection of language and race, right? That these two constructs cannot be separated when you look at the linguistic practices of, they say, minoritized communities, mm. because the agency of being a minority is not in our communities. Like we are minoritized by the, what you were saying, the powerful groups put us into these categories of you are this, so you must be like this, and you speak this language, yeah. and you have an accent, and that accent means like all of these ideas that are generated about you due to the way you speak and how you look and how people create perceptions about you based on all of these categories, right? And Jonathan Rosa has an interesting book called Looking Like a Language, Sounding Like a Race. Mm -hmm. Exactly like the question that you asked, we were just discussing that same question. You get asked, your English is perfect. How did you end up learning it when <laughs> you could have been born here? You yeah. Know? A white person is not asked the same question or is only asked that question when their accent is very pronounced. Maybe they might come from Eastern Europe or something. So this intersection of language and race and how it plays out in school settings is something really interesting yeah. to me because all of us have experienced it, especially if you don't look quote unquote mainstream in a society that has, in linguistics, we call it this hegemonic views of language. And these standard definitions of what is the prestigious variety of the language, right? Like in English, what is the, how you should sound like mm. to be considered, quote unquote, a native speaker or a fluent speaker of the language. Right. When there are many varieties of English in Nigeria, in all over the world, people speak English as their first language or as an additional language in a multilingual setting. But we still have this conception of what is the appropriate accent of English? And in many ways, it's challenging those, those ideas in education settings that I am trying to also see and how they impact also our connections to when we discuss environmental issues, right? Yeah. Like we are criticized about your language or seen as different from the norm. And then the language tells you that you don't identify with it through all of these ideologies that are taking place around you then how teachers and students can do to counteract mm -hmm. these messages. Yeah. So you said something about ideologies. What are some of the implicit and the explicit ideologies that are reflected in the design and implementation of teaching, science, and environmental topics? Mm -hmm. One of them is this hegemonic the most powerful individuals create these, let's say, in bilingual ed is, for example, the, the idea that there is one English, right? Yeah. And then this English is the one that counts. If you bring another English, then, or you speak another variety of English, then yours is of lower value. And then through that, you get judged also by your education, you know, by your, your level of education or the practices that you use. So in many ways, what I'm trying to see is in this paper by Flores and Rosa, they say it's never, even if you were to acquire the standard variety of the language, you will still be judged. You will still be perceived as different because of the way you look mm -hmm. and because of what you represent. And even if you use it, people will, like what you were saying, people will ask you, how did you end up acquiring it? Like you were never accepted. Yeah. So that is one, like the, this hegemonic ideology is this, the monolingualism as the norm, that this is another idea that we are trying to see, that I'm trying to examine. Like in Asia or Europe or Latin America, among indigenous groups, there are so many different languages and people tend to be multilingual than monolingual across the planet. But then we face the ideology that a monolingualism is the norm and monolingualism in English. And in English, the higher prestige variety that, quote unquote, is seen as the, the one that we need to acquire and teach around the, in the schools. And then I am particularly looking at how different programs and textbooks frame or erase the varieties of languages spoken by, let's say, Latinx students who may speak, let's say, Chicano English or uh, Latinx English or Spanglish. But from a, an asset-based perspective, so Spanglish has kind of this history of this pejorative view of Spanglish as, as another language, right? Mm. My son, he's 10 years old, 
And when we speak Spanish, that Spanish, of course, is is influenced by English, right. right? Like it's it's just the nature of growing up in a multilingual society. And there have been several studies about the Spanish varieties in the U.S. and how we should respect them and use them in formal settings rather than saying that just the way you talk to your friends in the playground, right? But don't ever use them in, let's say, to learn science. Right. Essentially, when my son talks to me, we speak in mostly Spanish with some English. But he turns around and he talks to his friends and he's using English and these Spanglish varieties. Mm-hmm. So multilinguals never stick to one language, right. never. And then in the school settings, we don't use that in a productive way. We don't use that multilingual knowledge to right. talk about content, right. to talk about uh, using the language that we use when we talk to our friends, to our families, this more social-emotional, what connects us to the language as a way of creating community. Right. Netflix is now, there are more multilingual shows yes. being produced, which I really like. There is one called Gentify, yeah. which is completely... I love that show. <laughs> so good. And so it's being embraced in some ways, I think, Yeah. to reflect what really happens in society, in a multilingual society. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of struggle with, you know, I love that we're seeing more shows that are kind of embracing the diversity of cultures in the U.S., you know, starting with Gentified. And there's so many different characters in that show, which kind of gives you an idea of the cultural and the demographic kind of dynamics that Mm -hmm. exist in those type of cultures, or I should say those type of communities rather. And while I appreciate it, I don't know how much of that is actually being transferred into the real world because mm-hmm. I'm just imagining, yes, I embracing this information through the show and I have a greater appreciation for the culture and the different kind of like sociopolitical, socioeconomic kind of dynamics taking place there. However, for somebody who's not as familiar or who's yeah. still kind of learning about that stuff, will they be able to recognize it mm-hmm. in the real world in terms of gentrification, which is what that show is based upon, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Gentified. At first I read it as hentified. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> <No>. that's, that, <laughs> yeah. that kind of like reflects how the one semester of Spanish that I did <laughs> kind of like sometimes. It's weird. Sometimes I'll read w- words like they're in Hindi or mm-hmm. Spanish. And mm-hmm. then I catch myself being like, but that doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's an English word. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So you kind of have to switch. And I guess where I was going with that is I appreciate that there are shows that are celebrating the diversity of thought and cultures and looking at all of these political impacts on these communities. I just don't know if that transfers. So I'm just thinking in terms of a teacher in a classroom, right? They may be aware of these issues, but when they're teaching, you have to become uncomfortable in teaching something that is in context. You have to feel knowledgeable enough. So from what you're talking about your research, a lot of it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is focusing on the teacher as the source or the origin of that change for a more representative educational experience. Most teachers in the U.S. are white and female, middle income to upper. How do you see your research working with them in building up their capacity to be more culturally sensitive and also really want to learn more about the populations that they're teaching to. Mm -hmm. I was just having this conversation a few weeks ago with a friend of mine. His name is Ramon Martinez. He's a professor of bilingual education at Stanford University. And I read one of his pieces for, and we were working with one of his pieces for the class that I am currently teaching. He uses in his research a framework developed by another friend of mine who's a very nice guy. He's at UC Davis, Danny Martinez. And they use this framework called the teacher solidarity lens mm-hmm. that I loved. And I hadn't heard it before, but I always thought about myself having been a teacher for many years in here in Wisconsin and then in California, that I don't see myself as, for example, judging teachers or telling teachers you are doing this wrong and you are doing that wrong and you're not doing this well, or you're a racist or you're not culturally sensitive or linguistically sensitive towards your multilingual students, because I was one in their shoes. I know how hard it is to 
teach 25 students at the same time, not having enough resources with salaries that are very low, sometimes depending on the areas in which you live and overall very lower than in other professions. So I, I didn't know how to, on the one hand, say we should talk about that teachers should engage in these type of conversations. And on the other hand, thinking that teachers already do so much and are already stressed. and are right. So I was for the longest time struggling with finding a way to how do I present my thinking in a way that addresses these two in some ways, I don't want teachers to do more when they are already doing so much. And at the same time, and sometimes not valued for it, but at the same time saying we need to engage in these conversations on how do we serve the needs of children of minoritized communities, children who come from low-income families, and are we prepared to do that? So this teacher solidarity lens addresses that. It says, coming from a place of valuing the work that teachers do, how can we support them in addressing or conducting or engaging in these type of conversations around race, language, environmental issues in a respectful and productive way. And that in some ways says, and that's what I'm trying to do in this project that I am proposing, is asking first of all teachers, what do they know already about mm, yeah. the local environmental issues? Uh, what do they know or think about the Latinx students that they are serving? Uh, just like in a kind of creating this atmosphere of trust, right? Like I'm saying, tell me, I'm not going to judge you, just tell me if you don't know what to think about these new students that you have here. Mm -hmm. And then those are informed by these ideologies we were just discussing that you speak Spanish, therefore you must be this, 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 this and that. I think the initial step is to have these honest conversations about this is what I think about this group of people. Right. And then to say, okay, let's see where those ideas come from. Challenge the deficit views, perhaps sometimes, that we all have. There is a professor at Stanford, his name is Brian Brown. And he says, all of us have some type of prejudice and are biased in right. many ways. And so the number one thing is to acknowledge your biases and have an ethical self-reflection of what those are and how can we ourselves, inside ourselves, challenge them and who can be our critical friends, right? Who, who is someone that I trust that can say, can you tell me more? What should I read? Can, we, can I better myself in knowing and addressing these ideas that I have about specific languages or groups or people, and then kind of identifying what is my current knowledge and beliefs, perhaps, and opinions, to then say, okay, I want to identify those, and then how can I change those if needed? Mm -hmm. And in education, in a couple of programs that I saw that I really liked, it says, for the benefit of my students. So it's not about me sometimes. It's if I want, if my, as a teacher, my job and my duty is to serve all of my students in the best possible way. So it's moving the center from me as a person who has these political views and these ideas. So basically, it's not about me sometimes. It's about if I have different groups of students, how can I better serve them? And right. to do that, what do I need to rework in my head? What do I need to learn about my students and about their communities in order to be a better teacher? So yeah. when I talked to Ramon about this teacher solidarity lens, I thought, wow, that is what I need. This connection between how can I support teachers in going through this process? Right. If I, at the end I want to engage with them in these discussions and then later on hope that they will engage in similar conversations with their students. Yeah. As you were talking about what the ideal model looks like, it made me wonder, are there any existing programs in the U.S. or outside that you see are, are working from the perspective of teaching environmental issues to multilingual students. There is one that, that I really like at the University of Washington. There is a professor there. His name is Philip Bell, B-E-L-L. -L, mm -hmm. And he has worked with Brian Brown and with, there is a professor, a researcher, her name is Megan Bang, B-A-N-G. And she's right now, I think, the vice president or president, I think it's vice president of a Spencer, the Spencer Foundation. They discuss these different ways of knowing that children of various communities bring to the learning of science. And one of them was produced by Megan Bang and Philip Bell. 
and it's part of an NSF, I think, NSF grant or program. And the website that they have is called STEM Teaching Tools. It addresses these different epistemologies, these ways of knowing that we have when we think about issues. Megan works with indigenous Native American students and how First Nation Native American students can use when they are learning science and how we can incorporate those in the teaching of science Mm -hmm. when we mostly use Western perspectives of science teaching, especially because we think science is uh, an objective. It goes back again to these ideas about factual teaching versus acknowledging that different peoples are learning these concepts through different experiences and different life histories and how this knowledge was produced. The work produced by Megan Bang and Brian Brown, Philip Bell, has illuminated my thinking into addressing the different ways of knowing of different students. Yeah, I think you bring up this really great point about how, yes, it's a lot of work to add something else onto a teacher's plate, but it's also fundamental Mm -hmm. that the way they're teaching their students is in a way that they're hearing them and that they're seeing them because students spend the majority of their time in school. Mm-hmm. And so they want to feel safe in addition to being represented and seen. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, that's where a lot of their mental and personal development happens in school mm-hmm. and through their interactions with their teachers. So I can totally see where you struggle with in terms of we really need to have this, but Mm -hmm. teachers already have so much on their plate. But then you have the examples of Philip Bell, Megan Bang, and you said Brian Brown, who Mm -hmm. are creating models that are successful. So that kind of gives me hope that there is something that can be done to help teachers Mm -hmm. because they play such a fundamental part of our development. and. I admire them and kudos to them for going above and beyond mm-hmm. curricula sometimes. Yeah. And I feel like because of the the characters of the personalities of teachers, they will be a little bit more open to the idea of incorporating these type of inclusive principles into their teaching, especially about environmental issues, which we are seeing are impacting everyone. Yeah, and I think teachers play this local role, right? Because in what I'm seeing in textbooks, they are produced for the entire state, right? Yeah. But there are many issues that are very local. So teachers are the ones who present these materials or this content. They are the ones who could localize it, right? Contextualize it into the local communities. Right. Because the materials... You know, these textbooks, these big publishers produce this for mm-hmm. the entire United States. And they are not going to address flooding in Wisconsin. Right. They might mention it as an example, but teachers are, I think, beyond family members are the most important sources of information for their students into how all of these things matter to me, matter to who I am to where I live, to what is affect, impacting, affecting me on the yeah. day-to-day basis. Yeah. So that role, especially as it relates to these environmental problems that we're facing and how things like the COVID-19 is playing out in my community, right? And how should I, yeah. what should I do different yeah. from what happens in a bigger city? Or, and right now the teachers are working online to develop this content, the conversation that we were having before, this new reality of being in these times. So I think that the role of teachers in tailoring and this many times factual content and presenting in more humanized ways to address this diversity of communities, I think is fundamental. Yeah. Teachers are really the front line of education, not to overuse the word because of COVID-19 pandemic, but they really are. And it's the community's responsibility to provide them with the resources, the tools that they need to build their own capacity and carry on this agenda or this ideology of teaching in a way that is relevant to their Mm -hmm. students. Yep. In a local way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And contextually, within context, really. We've been talking a lot about teachers. You're a teacher. (laughs) What advice would you give to somebody who's looking to build their career in environmental education, be an environment teacher in this topic? 
Mm -hmm. And you mentioned this. We need a more diverse teaching force. We need people of different communities to become teachers because right. students need to see themselves reflected in their teachers. So you, know, true. you need to see that people like you are teachers, number one, and two, that you're part of this group of authority figures that you're exposed to every day. And the more that we have a diverse teaching force, the more than that will benefit everyone. Not mm -hmm. only minoritized communities, but also white middle upper class groups also benefit by having these different conversations about different perspectives on various issues. Yeah. A friend of mine, she's a teacher, she's African American, and she teaches at a very an elite school in Dallas, in Texas. She's teaching African American literature mm. to in this all girls school. And she was telling me that when she applied to this teaching job, she was like, are you sure you want me here? Because she comes with this feminist. So she teaches that frameworks in teaching literature. And this school is predominantly white in staff and faculty and the students. And not only that, but it's also high income, right? The mm -hmm. student population. And they said, Yes. And the reason was, and she said that, why? She asked them, and the people who were hiring her were saying, because we want our students to be exposed to different ways of thinking, to mm -hmm. different ways of seeing the world. And the more authoritarian way I was talking with her about it is that when these students go to, let's say, college, and they want to go to college to the, the Ivy League institutions, if they do not know, or they are not comfortable and aware of interacting with students of different backgrounds, racial, ethnic, multilingual, they will not be perceived as educated in these more diverse settings like Boston or New York or San Francisco. Right. So in many ways, the multiracial teacher workforce benefits all of us. Yeah. Because you're exposed to different ways of seeing the world. And that challenges sometimes your way of thinking, makes you consider different perspectives in your own life or in ways content is presented. So but to do that, we need to create this pipeline in which more people of different backgrounds end up becoming teachers. Yeah. So, so I would say pursue your teaching dreams. Teaching is such a rewarding career. It's not well paid. There is this book called The Teacher Wars. Yeah. It's a fantastic book that goes through the history of American education and what ideas have been tried before and then we're thinking, oh, they are so new when they were already tried in the 40s or 50s. But one of the things that this book discusses is how education is perceived as vocation, right? And how by thinking of education as a vocation, politicians sometimes do not want to raise the salaries because we think you were born to a religious vocation, that yeah. you don't care about money, that you are doing it for the benefit of society. Which in teaching is true, but it should also be valued in financial terms. All of the, what they were saying, all the work that teachers do is not compensated in the way that it should. But on the other hand, I tell my students that all the time, and I have students from different departments, like the English department, the Italian department, I have students who are doing their PhDs in writing. And I tell them, it's good that you get something in education because there is always a need of teachers. Right. You will always find a job. There would always be a need of someone to teach something and yeah. someone who is prepared to, in these cultural responsive and linguistic responsive frameworks, that you can bring your own yeah. self, your own persona to, to in the teaching of these topics. Even if it's just a little seed, just to take a class in education and perhaps you will end up liking it like I did, you know? I never thought that I was going to, like I thought that I was going to become a teacher when I was in high school. Mm. I wanted to become a teacher, I remember. I clearly remember thinking, I want to become a teacher. But then when I brought up that idea to my house, they were like, no, you're going <laughs> it's to suicide. Be, yeah, you're going to, you're not going to have enough money to support the family. And you will be perceived as not being ambitious. Or There are all of these conceptions about teachers and about yeah. teaching in general versus an engineer or a doctor that permeate in different ways to different contexts. So in some ways, it's fighting that. If you want to become a teacher, it's fighting already the way people perceive education. Yeah. And then on the other hand is, yes, accepting that is not going to be well paid, but at the same time, that you will have opportunities. And it also requires a change in the system. That is the big part that at the macro level, how can we do as a system to 
if we want teachers to engage in all of these things, how can we modify the system in a way that supports them in doing that? But I will just encourage everyone, if you have an interest and a willingness to go through it, to do it. Yeah, that's great advice. I think teachers have the power of knowledge. They have the power of influence and it can be used for good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It can be used for bad. It just depends on the individual and how much of a sense of responsibility they think that they have towards their students, right? But at the same time, it's just so ironic that we do not give much value to the people who are sharing knowledge to our children, creating this next generation of leaders. It's really quite sad. And it's one of those mindset about or a perception towards teachers. It's just all over the world. Yeah. (laughs) Environmentalists. Like, don't do it. You're going to die. You're not going (laughs) to to die hungry, but it's work that needs to be done. Yeah. And it's such an important work. And then when we think about teachers take care of the thing that we love the most, right? Or the people who we love the most are children. Imagine that, like putting your kids in the care of someone, you really need to trust it. And I will pay. I know that I want the best of the best. Like everyone wants the best of the best for their children. Everyone, I would say. So we need to value that at the macro level, right? At the macro level, we need to think there are all of these things that we're asking teachers to do. And how are we supporting them in doing that Uh, financially, academically, socially, emotionally? What can we do better? Your conversation we had a few minutes ago in these chaotic times and as As you were saying, hopefully this is also a wake-up call to say, what can we do as a society to improve at the social level, at the environmental level? Can this be a way of saying, can this be a turning point into all of the things that were not working well and we're seeing the results of a healthcare system that doesn't have enough funding, teachers who don't have resources to teach online, students who don't have computers, how low-income individuals are paying the highest price of these sad and unpredictable times, what can we learn as a society to to improve these outcomes for everyone? So we should think a lot about, in these different domains, right, in environmental education, environmental studies, teachers, and as a society, how can we have an impact All of Mm -hmm. us are calling different ways to do things. You know, our personalities are different, our backgrounds are different. So the way we can impact this world is different. You know, not everyone, a friend of mine saying, I I want to do this, but I don't feel comfortable about doing that. We were just saying, then do what you feel comfortable in doing, but do something. Yeah. The way we act and enact our beliefs and actions is different, but we should do something. You know, so some people are love teaching them. Explore your teaching passion. And even if some people after the first class, they are like, no, thank you, bye. Yeah. <laughs> some others pursue it and some are very successful teachers. People who never thought that they could teach end up becoming really good teachers. Yeah. And so especially if you are from a community that has, that you didn't see yourself reflected in your teachers, right? You never saw a teacher from India or Kenya or Ecuador or Mexico whose family came from those countries or who had an accent or who like a science teacher of a woman, then change it. It's up to us to think about how can we change those things? What can we do in ourselves and also in connecting to other people who may be interested in, in this field? Right, right. We're reaching the end of our conversation here. So I have a series of four questions. They're sort of like lightning round questions. So mm-hmm. we'll go ahead and ask those. So... What have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? Academically, or it could be anything? Anything. Well, you've given us a lot of books and articles and researchers that we can definitely follow up on, and we'll do so in our blog article. But yes, if it's academically or non, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. When I get home after reading all of, because my life is to read all of these academic things, I just want to be reading anything that doesn't make me think. Yeah. I just like to think about other things. So lately I've been reading the Cormoran Strike series written by Rowling, the one who wrote 
the Harry Potter series. Okay. So she uses a pseudonym, Robert Gilbrandt, and she wrote this detective series about this detective who in London. So nothing to do with Harry Potter, nothing yeah. at all. Uh, but it's just takes my mind away from. Yeah. But at least for a period of time. Yeah. From all of the things that I am reading during the day. Yeah. And then, so in the academic way, I, the book that impacted me the most was this Racial Linguistics, edited by Samia Lim and John Rickford and Ernita Ball, mm-hmm. that discusses these intersections of how we can study this language and race. And then in that book, I read, just read a chapter by Samia Lim that is called Who is Afraid of the Transracial Subject? in mm-hmm. which he's uh, Egyptian descent, but he also speaks Spanish and English, and mm-hmm. but he's brown, right? Yeah. He has a beard. So Hispanic, Mexican-Americans think that he's Mexican. <laughs> and then they talk to him in Spanish, and then white people don't know what to do with him. So they try to figure <laughs> out, uh, what are you? You know, and he's, he has been asked, so are you, but you don't sound like that. And so he's saying how we are categorized based on how we look and stuff. So that was a chapter that really impacted my thinking. One time I was, I remember going to store and people saying, I was with a friend of mine and I went to try out something in the changing room. And then she was asking, where did the Filipino guy go? So sometimes I am categorized as a Filipino, sometimes as a Mexican, sometimes as a, who knows? So but he discusses this idea of when you don't match people's perception of what you should be in their minds, yeah. you know, or how people who think they look like you should behave or something. Those are the two books that, on one on the very much take my mind away from what's yeah. happening in my life, and the other one very much connected to what I do as an academic. I'll definitely check out the, the latter, the racial linguistic book. It sounds very interesting. The next question is, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? That's a good question. I guess for me, is I kept my schedule from when I was a teacher, like having a regular day in academia is not as defined. Like right? Right. You, you, on Sunday, all day Sunday, I was producing online content for the class that I was teaching on Monday. Yes. So I don't have fixed hours. So I can be working all day or Saturday and Sunday. And then Monday is my, I do less of that work. So at the beginning, the best advice that I heard was try to keep your schedule fixed as possible as if you were to have an eight to five job. See this as an eight to five. I don't think I kept it. I think it's a good <laughs> advice, but I don't think it works. For me, it's mostly having a fixed deadline. For yeah. me, when I am thinking about the paper, conferences, those are definite dates. The conference is happening this day, so you therefore have to have your work done by versus in papers it can always extend and more and so but having a fixed date in mind that is set it's something that i yeah that helps me in producing and being productive yeah so giving yourself deadlines yes okay. well, not myself i try to get someone <laughs> to give it to me because <laughs> if i give it to myself i was like well yeah. like maybe another day or maybe i can yeah. read this other paper and but there is always an infinite number of books and papers that you can read. And so at some point, it just has to be produced. Yeah. And having a set deadline helps me in actually yeah. doing it. Okay. What's the best piece of advice you've received? <laughs> I guess the advice on trying to have a structure in your day. Yes. <laughs> and the other thing is just, I was very lucky to have and a fantastic person as my advisor. Mm-hmm. His name is Kenji Hakuta. He just retired from, from Stanford uh, a couple of years ago. But he allowed me to explore. So I did my master's in biology and a master's in linguistics. He was never like, why? You know, mm-hmm. He wasn't like, how are you going to connect linguistics with, let's say, biology? He allowed me to be intellectually curious. Mm-hmm. And he encouraged me in exploring my ideas. So I think he wasn't advising ways of telling me things. It was an advice in his way of being, his persona. And we were always having, he had an enormous impact on policy for children acquiring English as another language, but his training is in psycholinguistics. So he always used to talk to me about how he sometimes thinks that following the academic path in terms of becoming an expert in a particular domain inside the field 
-hmm. and how that is a way of being an academic, a successful academic. And he was saying that, but instead he pursued this more broader sense of academia into having an impact in policy. And I was telling him that that to me seems more to reflect how I engage with academia in yeah. ways to how can we use this to do an impact in that. So to me, it's more like having this mindset of following your intellectual curiosity. Yeah, I like that. And the final question here is, what is your superpower? I have a t-shirt that actually says, <laughs> being bilingual is my superpower. Okay, and, uh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, there is a t-shirt that was produced uh, in, or made in Dallas Independent School District mm -hmm. for the dual language teachers. And it says, being bilingual is my superpower. And I think that is, especially for children whose languages are not seen as, quote-unquote, prestigious, telling them, no matter what language you speak, that is your superpower. If you speak, you're multilingual. If you speak more than one language, that's a fantastic superpower to have. Yeah, I agree. So this brings us to the, I shouldn't say the end, but it's just a pause to our conversation because I'm sure we'll connect later on again. How can we follow you on your journey? I would love to keep having these conversations and learn about what other researchers are doing and uh, the work that you're doing with your podcast. I could send you... If you're on LinkedIn or ResearchGate. I am in LinkedIn. I don't post much on LinkedIn. <laughs> ResearchGate. So yes, okay. I should. <laughs> but I think the website of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, my website, would yeah. be the best place to, to look at this work. I am right now moving my research to Madison. This is just my second semester here. Okay. So I am kind of contextualizing my work now in the Midwest. Yeah. So, but I will publish my, the papers that I do around here. here. Yeah. And I look forward to those, actually. Thank you, Sam. So, is there anything else that you want to add before we end? No, that just to thank you about this work that you're doing. There is a group called the Coalition for the Public Understanding of Science. It's called COPUS. I was part of that. I am still part of it. I haven't been able to go through there. They have an unconference for science education mm. in which they try to connect with different audiences that are not traditionally connected to, let's say, that the work that academics do in our various yeah. fields. So now that I think about doing this type of work in connecting different audiences to the work that people from different fields are doing. Yeah. Okay. I will definitely check them out. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.